you got your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke. This is what we do here at Wilderness Church. We just go through the Bible, nothing too fancy. We get together, worship passionately, do a ministry moment, let people know what's going on, and then get into the Word. And we just go, go through a book of the Bible. Right now we're looking at the book of Luke, and we're up to chapter 9, starting with verse 18. I want to entitle this message, Shock God. It's not that we're supposed to shock God, but He is a shocking God. And um, that's why he's a beautiful God. I'm, I'm going to tell you that this, this message confronts core, core things, um, core elements of our culture that all of us have been, to some degree, uh, infected by. Uh, it is a hard-hitting message, uh, and it's one that we desperately need to hear. So it starts in verse 18. Shock God. Once when Jesus was praying in private, you know, Jesus was always praying and we're supposed to follow his example. His disciples were with him. So he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? What's the opinion poll out there? And they said, some say you're John the Baptist. Like you got the spirit of John the Baptist on you. Others say you're Elijah, because some, some Jews of the first century thought Elijah would return at the end of days, uh, at the end of the epoch. And still others think that you're one of the prophets from long ago that's been resurrected, that's come back to life. But what about you, Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. So Jesus acknowledges that he's the Messiah, but he says, don't go around telling everybody this. Now the reason is because, as we'll see here in a little bit, the the concept of the Messiah was thoroughly militarized in the first century. And so when people heard Messiah, they heard God's warrior. If it got out that Jesus was the Messiah and people are thinking warrior, that would have really uh, twisted the direction of his ministry. It probably also would have got him crucified earlier than he wanted to be crucified. He was buying time because he needed three years to lay the foundation uh, for this this coming uh, uh, revolution. And so he told them, don't tell anybody, just like he did when he healed people. In a Jewish environment, he said, don't go spreading this around. He was buying time. And then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is simply another messianic concept of the first century. Uh, It's another word for the Messiah. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised again. And as we're going to see here in a moment, this is the last thing his disciples would be expecting the Messiah to say. First word out of his mouth. It completely contradicts what they would expect the Messiah to be. Then Jesus said to them, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world? That's kind of what the world means by life. Get as much of the world as you can get. Well, suppose you really were good at that. What good is it if you gained the whole world? You ruled the world, and yet you lose or forfeit your very self, your soul. If any of you are ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, why would Jesus need to warn them about not being ashamed? And the answer is that, given their worldview and their concept of the Messiah as being militarized and and being full of power, 
And given just the fact that the fallen world is the world that craves power, given all of that, what he just said the Messiah is going to do is, is embarrassing. To believe in a Messiah who's going to get killed uh, is, is, is shameful in the context of this world and in the context of their first century worldview. And to follow that Messiah and make him your example is not only embarrassing, it's going to be very painful. And so Jesus warns them, don't be ashamed of this. It may look weak to you. It may look pathetic to you. Resist that and don't be ashamed. And this is the price of being in the kingdom. Because if, if, if uh, you don't own this, then it's not going to own you. And then Jesus says something very puzzling. He says, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Now what does that mean? It looks as though Jesus is saying there are some who aren't going to taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in all of his glory. And, uh, uh, you know, it looks like he's saying the second coming. Uh, and the trouble with that is that Jesus hasn't come back in all of his glory. We're still waiting for him to come back in all of his glory and establish fully his kingdom here. So either Jesus was wrong, since all the disciples died a long time ago and he hasn't come back yet, or he must mean something very different by this uh, teaching. And since I've got good reasons to think Jesus is the Son of God and can't be wrong about something like this, I think we need to look at some other alternative explanation. I don't want to go into it too much, but I'll just say this. There's really three proposals on the table. One, some think he's referring to his transfiguration, which is the, that will occur in the next passage we're going to study in Luke. And that, he was up on the mountaintop and he displayed his glory. And that kind of makes sense. He's, the Son of Man is shown in glory. But it also has trouble fitting the context because why would Jesus say some here aren't going to die about an event that's going to happen in a couple hours or at the most a couple days? Because none of them died before then. So that really doesn't fit very well. Some think he's referring to the resurrection. Um, and that kind of fits. Here we, put, we see the son of, uh, son, of, son of Man being displayed in all of his glory. But again, why would Jesus say some standing here aren't going to die until they, they see this? Because only one died, and that was Judas. But that's a possible interpretation, though it almost, Jesus seems to suggest that most of you are going to die, but some of you aren't. And so there's still a little tension with that, that view. A third possibility, which I think is the most plausible, though it's usually the least heard, but many scholars argue that the concept of coming in glory in the first century if you look at the, what's called the apocalyptic literature of the time, apocalyptic literature was a, a genre of literature that was very prevalent in, in, the, in the day of Jesus. And if you look at and examine that literature, the concept of coming in glory always or almost always referred to judgment, some kind of a judgment. And some scholars therefore conclude that what Jesus was referring to was the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., and that's when the Romans just kicked all the Jews out of their land for the next 2,000 years and destroyed the temple. Um, what gives credibility to that interpretation is that if you read the book of Matthew, Matthew 24, Jesus explicitly associates the coming of the Son of Man in glory with the destruction of the temple. And so that theory has some uh, plausibility to it. It's also plausible because... Um, from a, from a Christian perspective, from a kingdom perspective, the destruction of the temple uh, and the end of the sacrificial system really put a definitive end to the old regime, uh, what we've been calling the old Israel, which was centered on the temple and centered on the sacrifices that happened in the temple. That was the center of the, the, the old Israel religion. That was brought to an end. 
And, uh, and so in this way, it sort of symbolizes the transition of regimes. God transitioning from an old program to a new program. As God is bringing into the world now a new Israel, uh, what he calls the kingdom of God. And it's going to differ quite strongly from the old Israel. Because in this new Israel, it's not based on a particular ethnicity as the old was. It's not based on a particular nationality as the old was. And it's not characterized by military force as the old sometimes was. And so uh, many scholars argue that Jesus is here referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. I wouldn't die for that theory, but I think it's plausible. But that's not what I'm here to preach on. I want to get into the meat of this message. And before I do it, I want to pray. So pray with me here. Lord, this passage goes to the core. It goes to the core of what you're about, and it goes against the core of what the world is about. And we've all been influenced by the world. I pray, Lord God, that uh, you would give us receptive hearts to receive your word in all of its power. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would infuse each word with your authority to change our way of thinking, to change our, some of our most fundamental assumptions, to turn our whole world upside down if necessary to make us radical, revolutionary people who seek to do your will in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. 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 So how many of you saw the CNN special this week on God's Warriors? A good portion of you. Those who didn't see it, I'm told it's going to show again tonight at like 10 or 11 o'clock, so you might want to check it out. It was a fascinating special. My favorite quote in the whole special is the pastor, uh, one pastor on the third segment, uh, who said, he quotes Jesus as saying, take care of the poor and the widow, and yes, get out and vote. Uh, did you see that? I, I love that, that quote. That's, now, I, I, I missed that passage. I, I looked for it. I, I couldn't find it in my concordance. I don't know where that, that passage is, but, but uh, <laughs> I had to rewind. Did he actually say that? Did he actually say that? And he did. God bless him. God bless him. Uh, but I say that because this message here... I. It comes out straight out of the text, but it happens to come straight out of that CNN special too. And I, I want you to know that I had the message, at least the core of the message done before that CNN special uh, happened. It just happens to, maybe by divine providence, coincide with it perfectly. If you didn't see it, the, the gist of this special, it's called God's Warriors with, with Christiane Amapur. And what she does is she examines um, this movement that's kind of been happening, especially in the last 30 years. Uh, there's a rise in Islam and Judaism and Christianity. Those were the three segments that that she had. And there's the the, uh, the rise, kind of fast rise, of what she calls God's warriors. These are people who want to gain power um, and use power and sometimes use violence if necessary to enforce what they believe is is God's will uh, and their ideology on others. And it is a little bit frightening. I personally believe that the greatest threat to world peace is not Iran or, um, or, or Pakistan or China or Russia. I think it's religion. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's a dangerous sort of a thing. The warriors she looked at all came from a different, different religions. You had the Islamic warriors, you had the, the, the Jewish warriors, and you had the Christian warriors. And so they carried out their warfare, if you will, under the name of a, of a different God and, and in the context of a different religion. But at their core, this is what I want us to see, at their core, they're really identical. They all share a fundamental conviction. The conviction is that 
They all associate God with conquering power, gaining power over others. And they all believe that they do God's will by using power to enforce what they think is their superior will on others and to vanquish their enemies when necessary or if possible. What I want us to know is that that core conviction, associating God with with conquest power and thinking it's your job to fix the world by using power, that is as old as human history. It goes back to the fall. You find throughout history, people have always associated God with power, God with bigness, God with military might, and thought they were doing God's bidding by using power. Study world religions throughout history, ancient, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Egyptians, the Mayans, the, the Aztecs, the Persians, the, the Germanic tribes. Uh, all of them have these power uh, pictures of God. They associate God with power and they believe they're going to fix the world by using the power to enforce their superior ideas on others and to vanquish their enemies. And, and the warriors of, of, of the Jewish religion, of Islam, and of Christianity are doing the exact same thing, just in the name of a different God. It's the same old, same old. We make God after our own image. You see, fallen people, fallen people uh, we have throughout history lusted after power. And so we project onto God our own image. And so it's no wonder that these, these gods uh, become sort of major emperors, Caesars, uh, big examples of what we would like to be. Now you find, we've got to deal with this, we find some of this even in the Old Testament. Uh, you find the association of God with power and war to some degree, especially in the older sections of the Old Testament. But there's two major differences that I want us to see that separate the Old Testament from what you find going throughout history in these other pagan religions. First, the Jews were never allowed to consider themselves as God's warriors. They were never allowed to trust the power of the sword. When they went into battle, they weren't even allowed to count how many soldiers they had. They weren't allowed to calculate whether they could carry out the battle or not. They were to have no trust in their military force. Their trust was to be in God. They weren't to put any trust in their military strategies. Their trust was to be in God. And when they put their own trust in their own military power, they always lost. That's why in the Old Testament you never find celebrated great warriors. No one is ever held up as a hero because of their great military strength, and no one's held up as a hero because of their great military strategizing ability. The only ones who are held up as heroes are people of faith. They fought warfare in a totally different way than the other nations. Sometimes they won battles without, without ever having to lift their sword at all uh, or, or suffering any casualties uh, because their, their job was to trust that God would do warfare for them. But the second point, which is even more important, is this. You find in the Old Testament gradually uh, an evolving picture of God away from the God of war towards a God of peace. In the older sections, you find more of the warfare stuff. In the later sections, you'll find more of a God who's not just tribally aligned with Israel, but is the Lord of the whole earth, a God whose goal and objective is peace. And I think what's going on here is that God, when God communicates to us, our, us fallen human people, he's kind of like a missionary in a foreign country where you have to accept most of what's going on in order to change it from the inside. So God meets us where we're at with all of our violent mindsets, but gradually he's trying to wean human beings off of our association of God with power and war. And so you find in some of the later sections of the Old Testament, uh, sometimes beautiful portrayals of God in his loveliness and, and, and his, his kindness and his grace, and a God who's 
whose ultimate objective is to drive the world towards peace. And so, for example, you find in the prophet Micah, he says this, that there'll come a day when Yahweh will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for, na for strong nations far and wide. God will be the referee. And these nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. They're going to take their weapons of mass destructions and melt them and turn them into instruments that actually help humanity. I look forward to that day. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Beautiful vision right there in the Old Testament. And so what we're seeing in the Old Testament is that increasingly you find a, a, a picture, uh, a, a revelation where you see that violence was never God's ideal. God's heart is for peace. You find a vision where God's, God values loving service, not military conquest. And you find a picture of God who's a God of all peoples, the whole, whole earth, not just the Jewish people. There's a special relationship he has with his chosen people, the, 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 the nation of Israel. But that relationship is to use them to reach the whole world. And that's what he's doing now through the person of Jesus Christ. Now what we need to know, as that applies to this passage we're studying this morning, is that evolving picture of God, the, God, the, the, the universal God who's driving towards peace, had very few people uh, receiving it in the first century. It wasn't the dominant view of God in the first century. Uh, they were more inclined to grab hold of the, the God of war images in the Old Testament. Maybe part of the problem is that these are, these are folks who are being trampled on by the Romans. They're being run by the Romans, treated unjustly by the Romans. And so the God of war and the God of victory is much more palatable to most of them than this God of peace. But be that as it may, for whatever reasons... Uh, you don't find the peace picture having much currency in the first century. And therefore, their view of the Messiah was thoroughly militarized and thoroughly politicized. They wanted a Messiah who would come and kick Roman behind. They wanted a Messiah who would come and get the Romans off their back, who would reinstate Israel as a sovereign nation, take Israel back for God, defeat Israel's foes, and many of them, we know, wanted Israel not just to be an independent nation, but the strongest nation on the planet, ruling the planet, and they thought that would be the kingdom of God. They had a thoroughly politicized theology. That's why they referred to the Messiah as, as uh, a Davidic Messiah or son of David, because they wanted a Messiah who would look like David, a king like David, carrying a sword like David, vanquishing enemies like David. That's how most Jews in the first century thought about the Messiah. So you can imagine how shocking it would be for the disciples to have Jesus say, I am the Messiah. But then he immediately adds, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed. The disciples' jaw had to drop wide open at that point. What? Say again? You, you are the Messiah. Okay, you, you, you agree with that. Which means that you're on our side. <laughs> you're on our side. And if you're on our side, that means you're against the Romans. And if you're against the Romans and you're the Messiah, well, that means you're going to use God's power to get rid of our enemies, to uh, you know, carry out our political and, and uh, uh, geographical and military uh, concerns. Uh, your job, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to not suffer, not die. You're supposed to make them suffer and die. But Jesus is saying here, I am the Messiah, but I have a newsflash for you. I haven't come to conquer your enemies. I've come to express God's love for your enemies, 
by actually letting your enemies kill me. That's not what they expected to hear. This couldn't possibly be, I can't imagine anything in the first century that would be more shocking than that. I tried to think of a parallel. Uh, what would shock us the way these folks would have been shocked? And I couldn't come up with one. The closest I could get with it was this. What would happen if today you went home and turned on CNN News and there you saw a report on a speech that George Bush gave this afternoon and he just called a news conference and he gave this speech and what he said was this, folks, I've had a change of mind. I think that we should uh, let Al-Qaeda win. I think we should let Osama bin Laden win. Uh, in fact, I'm going to offer up my life as a sacrifice to Osama bin Laden because I'm so in love with the man. That'd be kind of shocking. Well, I, that'd be... Uh, That'd be a little surprising. Well, that's kind, of how, that's kind of how these disciples would feel at this point. Here's Jesus. He's our president. You know, and he's the one who's supposed to take care of our enemies, and he's saying he's going to let the enemies win. The enemies are going to kill him. That, that would just blow their minds. Now, to make matters worse, if they could get worse, Jesus says, I'll tell you this, the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, the scribes of the law, they're going to play a role in getting me killed. See, the, the, the chief priests and the, the, the teachers and the scribes and the elders, these are the heroes of the first century. These are the people everyone looks up to. These are the, the, the people everyone admires. These are like the Billy Grahams of the first century. I have this profound admiration for Billy Graham. and He stayed humble all these years. I, there's this admiration there. Uh, well, that's how these people admired these religious leaders. And now Jesus is saying, guess what? They're going to align themselves on the wrong side of the fence when it comes to the kingdom of God. He's saying, the heroes of your religion and the power brokers of your religion, the ones that you think are, are, are righteous and true, well, it's going to turn out that they're not righteous and true. And this conquering model of the Messiah that you've got, that you think is righteous and true, well, that's going to turn out to be neither righteous nor true. What Jesus is basically saying, folks, here is, is this, nothing less than this. He's saying everything you thought you knew about God, everything you thought you knew about the Messiah, everything you thought about you knew about religious leadership and about your religion, everything you thought you knew about who's on the inside and who's on the outside, well, guess what? It's wrong. And so you got to, if you're going to get in on the kingdom that I've come, this radical kingdom that I, I, I've come to bring, you've got to scrap everything you think you know. Start over again. Tear it down and start from the ground up. And when you do that, listen to my teachings and follow my example. Put all, deconstruct it all. Folks, I, I, I think that's a healthy exercise for all of us to do at times. Uh, we think we know way more than we know. Sometimes you just need to overturn your whole theology, scrap it all. What if I didn't know a thing about God and I had only Jesus to work with? That's a good place to be. Uh, you know, because uh, you just keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Here he's saying, put all that aside, start over again, and keep your eyes focused on me. This isn't just going against traditional Jewish assumptions. It's going against the core assumption uh, uh, that most people have had throughout history and yet have today uh, about God and about religion. Because throughout history, we've always thought that God was about power and control. And here Jesus is revealing the true God by showing that he's not about power and control. He's about self-sacrificial love. The true God is omnipotent for sure. That means he's all-powerful, yes. But he doesn't use that omnipotence to squash his enemies, not in this epic. He uses that omnipotent power to love his enemies, to serve his enemies, to ultimately get killed by his enemies in the hope that he can liberate his enemies. We always thought throughout history that God or the gods were like giant Caesars, the emperors wielding the sword. But it turns out that the true God, the true God looks like the humble Jesus. 
carrying the cross and getting crucified on the cross. Which is why maybe we need to can everything we think we know and just lock this in. The clearest expression you have of what God is like is not Caesar wielding the sword, it's Jesus Christ dying on the cross. The clearest expression you have of what God's character is like is not Caesar wielding the sword, it's Jesus dying on the cross. And the clearest expression for how God operates in the world today is not found in a Caesar wielding the sword, it's found in Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And that is shocking. It's no wonder Jesus had to say, Take, be careful not to be ashamed of this. Be careful not to identify this as weak and impotent and irresponsible. Be careful you're not ashamed of this. That's why Jesus, everywhere he went, was saying, blessed is the person who's not offended in me. Because what he's saying and who he's being is offensive. And I'm convinced today, folks, that if you're preaching a gospel that doesn't at least have the potential to offend people, you're not preaching the gospel. Uh, the, the gospel is radically offensive to the natural mind. Now, you'd think that Jesus had done everything he could possibly do to shock the daylights out of, uh, out of his, his, his disciples, but he finds one more thing to shock them with. Because he goes on to say this. Tell you one more thing, and their heads are already spinning. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. This is just great. <laughs> Woohoo! Let's have a revival. First, you tell us you're going to die. And then, you tell us our heroes are the ones that are going to be putting you to death. And now, you're telling us to follow your example. <laughs> uh, this is, this is just mind-boggling. Take up your cross. Now, see, what problem we have today is this. A cross to us means nothing. Um, uh, at least as it's used in, in the popular culture, everyone wears a cross. It used to have a little bit of religious significance, but now, I mean, you know, people wear crosses, crucifixion. It doesn't mean a thing. It's an ornament. It's an earring. It's a necklace. It's a nothing. It's a piece of gold or whatever, but it doesn't have any meaning to it. But see, in the first century, the cross was packed with meaning. You could look on any given day up on the horizon and you saw people crucified. This was the way Romans, the primary way Romans put people to death. And they did it because they were installing terrorists. They were, they, they were terrorists and they were installing terror in people, saying, if you cross our paths and mess with us, this is what happens to you. The meaning of the cross in the first century was, was the meaning of, of a condemned, it meant a condemned person suffering a horrific, painful death. That's what it was to take up your cross. And Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, that's what you must do. Now, we don't have public executions anymore like they did back in the good old days. Uh, but, so it's hard to find a, a parallel here. I'm actually very glad about that. But, uh, but the closest parallel I could think of was this. It would be like Jesus saying to us today, if you're going to follow me, go find yourself an electric chair and sit in it and don't get out. Get in the electric chair. Assume the position of a condemned criminal. Assume the position of a victim of terrorism. Assume the position of someone who has forfeited their life and do it every day. Get in that electric chair. That's going to have to have wheels on it so you can get around. But, but stay in that electric chair. The electric wheelchair. There you go. Um, and see, you assume the humble position of a condemned criminal. What he's saying here, folks, is this. Let go of the Caesar lifestyle, the sword-yielding lifestyle, the power-over lifestyle, and you assume a Calvary lifestyle, a cross-carrying lifestyle, or if you will, an electric chair lifestyle. And this goes against the most fundamental assumption we've had throughout history about what religious people are supposed to be doing. Throughout history, all over the place, in all the world religions, go back as far as you want. We've always thought that God's disciples... We're to fix the world. 
Fix the world with our superior wisdom by gaining power and enforcing our righteous will on, on the unrighteous. We always have thought throughout history that we were supposed to be God's warriors. We always thought that we were supposed to be use lobbying and laws and bombs and bullets and whatever else is necessary to carry out God's will on earth and to vanquish his enemies. Common assumption throughout history, and Jesus is saying, no. The way to be a disciple is you let go of that attitude and you get yourself in an electric chair and you stay there. Adopt the, adopt the humble attitude of a condemned criminal and live a Calvary lifestyle. Jesus is revealing here, folks, that God's plan isn't to fix the world by overpowering enemies. Because God has a piece of wisdom that humans seem to be incapable of learning, and that is that you don't fix the world by overpowering your enemies. When you try to fix the world by overpowering your enemies, you just further break the world and recruit further enemies. It goes on and on and on, and that's the cycle of history. God's plan isn't to use righteous warriors to overpower others. God's plan in the world, this is the kingdom, is to use humble, condemned criminals facing execution to serve others. And that's how God's going to transform the world. God, Jesus reveals that God's plan isn't to overpower the world, but to transform the world. And the way he's going to transform the world is by raising up a people who live in outrageous self-sacrificial love. He's going to transform the world by raising up a people who are willing to give their life for others, including their enemies. He's raising up a people who are, are willing to lay down their rights, a people who are willing to let go of all claims to superiority on any level. He's, willing, he's, he's going to transform the world by raising up a people who use whatever power they have not to gain further privilege for themselves, but to invest in others, not to enforce their will on others, but to serve others. God's going to transform the world, not by military might, but by a people who are crazy enough to adapt an electric chair lifestyle, a Calvary lifestyle, a cross-carrying lifestyle, and that's how God's going to transform the world. And to whatever degree you're thinking in terms of the natural mind, this is nuts. This is insane. It's shocking. It's so shocking that most people today can't receive it. Even many who believe in Jesus can't receive it. It just doesn't have any categories to fit in their brain. That's why this message is so profoundly unpopular, especially here in the United States. It's why we still today have Christian warriors thinking and behaving exactly like, quote-unquote, God's warriors have done throughout history. They just do it in the name of a different God. If you watch that CNN special, what you saw is that all of God's warriors, they're all about proclaiming that we've got to protect our rights, advance our rights, uh, avenge our lost loved ones, get the people who got our loved ones, revenge, protect our country, advance our religion, defeat the evildoers, use the lobbying, use the laws, use the bombs, use the bullets, use whatever we got to do to carry out God's will on earth, and we'll tell you what God's will is. See, that message is far more palatable uh, to our fallen natures. Uh, that, that message makes sense to us because, after all, we are the righteous ones and those evil people are destroying the world. It, it, may, it, it makes sense. It, 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 it sounds a lot more pleasing to our, our, our fallen carnal natures. It's a lot easier to preach a Jesus who's all about reinforcing your self-interest. It's a lot easier to preach a Jesus that makes you feel righteous because uh, uh, you're not like other sinners. It's a whole lot easier. You get a whole lot more mileage in America anyways preaching a Jesus who's always out there to help you pass laws against those kind of sins, but of course not your kinds of sins. It's a lot easier to preach a Jesus who happens to always be fighting on uh, the, the side of your nation. It's a lot easier. You get a lot more hallelujahs and amens preaching a Jesus who's all about blessing me and making me healthy and making me wealthy and making me prosperous and giving me more American toys. You get a lot of people running the aisles on that kind of thing, but Jesus says... That ain't the kind of Jesus you're going to get because that's not the kind of Jesus I am. 
The kind of Jesus I am is the one who says, let go of all that and get yourself in an electric chair. Let go of all that and take up the cross. Let go of all that and decide to live with the humility of a condemned criminal. Let go of all that. Put that Caesar mindset and that Caesar lifestyle, that sword-yielding lifestyle, put it aside and adapt a Calvary lifestyle. Assume the position of a humble, condemned criminal. Because the truth is that the true God is not a power God made after our power-lust image. The true God is a beautiful God. He's a beautiful God of outrageous sacrifice. The true God is one who, who flexes his omnipotent muscle. And when he does it, it looks like Calvary, not like a giant Caesar emperor wielding the sword. The true God is one who's going to overcome evil. He will. Got that part right. But he does it through self-sacrificial love, not through coercive power. And the true God is one who calls us to follow his example. Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God. Look like Jesus, taking up your cross, putting yourselves in the position of a condemned criminal, forfeiting your rights to serve the world. That's the true God. That doesn't land well if you're thinking of things in a carnal uh, mindset. But there's good news. Here it is. Jesus' promise is that if you'll follow these commands, you'll do this, you'll discover life. The way to true life. Here's the irony of the kingdom. It's shocking. Excuse the pun. But you, get in the, you put yourself in an electric chair in the position of a condemned criminal, um, you're going to discover what life is all about. That's the teaching of Jesus. For he says, whoever wants to save their life Try to gain the whole world, at least as big a piece of the pie as you can. Try to rule the world. Tears of Fear says everyone wants to rule the world in the right. Whoever lets go of that, or, or whoever's trying to get a hold of that, you're going to lose your life. But whoever loses their life, you let go of everything the world calls life. If you do it for Christ's sake, you're going to save it. Forfeit what the world means by life, and you discover what life is all about. Put yourself in the electric chair in Jesus' name. Crucify yourself, and you, Jesus says you will discover Life. You'll discover a capacity to love you never otherwise would know. And because you're discovering a capacity to love, you'll discover a depth of joy you'd otherwise never know. You'll discover a depth of peace you would otherwise never know. When you die to yourself, put yourself in the electric chair, you, just, you discover kingdom life. It is God's life. It is abundant life. It is joyful life. It is peace-filled life. And it is eternal life because this is the one kind of life that lasts forever. The fighting, conquering, clinging, grasping, self-preservationist lifestyle is death. Satan makes you think that that's where life is all about. Scramble for the biggest piece of pie you can get. Jesus says that is death. If you want to discover what life is all about, let go of that. Everything that makes you unhappy, everything that makes you miserable, everything that makes you empty on the inside is due to living this self-preservationist, Caesar sword-wielding kind of lifestyle. If you die to that, you discover, you discover life, what real life is all about. Start living in outrageous love and you will come alive. Start living in outrageous generosity and you will come alive. Start investing in the lives of other people and you'll, you'll find a depth of peace and joy that you never otherwise would know. Let go of all judgment in your mind. Let go of all self-righteousness. Let go of all presumed superiority and you'll find unleashed in you a capacity to love folks that otherwise wouldn't be there and there's joy in that and there's, there's life in that. Let go of all retaliation in impulses, all vengeance. Give it to God and forgive. Live in forgiveness, letting go of others' debts, and you'll discover what life is all about. Well, how God wanted us to live, the kind of life God always planned on us to live. It's a fullness of life. 
It contrasts sharply with the emptiness of the Caesar life. That is real life. But the way to get there is to get in the, in the electric chair. It's the only way to find it. And so Jesus invites us to become condemned criminals sitting in the electric chair. To the natural mind, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, someone said to me rather recently, uh, here's one of the ways it doesn't make sense. Well, you know, if, you, if Christians start doing what you're saying to do, just love like Jesus loved, Put down the sword, take up the cross. You know what? Uh, Al-Qaeda's going to win. Uh, yeah, it's people like you. You're helping Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda's going to win. Uh, do you really want to be, uh, you know, living in a nation where the Taliban or the Al-Qaeda are, are, are ruling? Is that what you want? It's like, yeah, right. That's, that's exactly. I'm glad you got my message. Good interpretation. But see, I didn't say that. I wanted to, but then I got back down in the electric chair. <laughs> We're all sinners. See, I, I, let me say three things about that. Number one, at some point, don't you have to start trusting God? I don't know. I, 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 do you believe in God's providence? Do you think God is the Lord of history or not? Uh, is this world just kind of spinning out of control? And one of the things that, that, that uh, someone in, in, uh, one of my friends said as we were watching this series, he says, it's amazing how, how these God's warriors don't trust God. Uh, they don't trust God's providence, which is why they take matters into their own hand and pick up the sword and, and kill in God's name. They just don't trust God's providence. At some point, you got to say, do you believe that God's you know, steering the course of history or not? I believe that, so I'm not going to lose sleep over that one. Second point is this. If you're in the position of a condemned criminal, what business do you have contrasting yourself with the bad guys? Seems to me that you're, saying, you're admitting that you are the bad guy. You're not allowed, you forfeit the right to be feeding off of uh, the, your contrast between you, the good guy, versus the bad guy. Now, society and laws and police and nations, they, they've got to make all sorts of decisions about good, bad, and all, all in between. But our kingdom attitude, this is how shockingly radical it is, it's the attitude Paul expressed in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, when he says, here's a worthy saying that all should say, I am the worst of sinners. We're all supposed to be giving that saying, I am the worst of sinners. Which is why Jesus said, don't go looking for dust particles in other people's eyes when you got tree trunks sticking out of your own eyes. Consider other people's sin to be a mere dust particle compared to your sin, which is a tree trunk. That's a major difference. Why? You are a condemned criminal, so let go of that. And the third thing is this. My final point, Jesus says, the Son of Man must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. I'm responding to this man's objection. Well, it doesn't look like we're going to win. Jesus here gives a promise. Now, the disciples didn't hear this. At, at this point, I think their head was spinning so fast. This resurrection promise went in one ear and out the other. Because they, they when Jesus rose from the dead, they weren't expecting it. So they, they clearly did not hear this. And I can understand why. They were too shocked. But Jesus is here giving a promise of victory. What he's saying is this. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And you must be willing to do the same. But I'm going to rise victorious from the grave. And you're going to do the same. What he's saying is that in the end, God will overcome evil. Not by military force and conquest, but through the resurrection. He'll then show love will prevail. Light will dispel darkness. God will win in the end and evil will be eradicated. But see, on Good Friday, it doesn't look that way, does it? On Good Friday, it's going to look like you're losing, which is why it takes faith. This is the essence of kingdom faith, folks. When Jesus, when Jesus was getting crucified, he had to have faith that he was doing the right thing because it didn't look like he was winning. 
When, when, when they were putting the crowns of thorn on his head and spitting on him and sticking a spear in his side and putting the nails through his hands and the nails through his feet, it doesn't look like and it doesn't feel like God is winning. Jesus has to have faith. This is the right thing, right, Father? Uh, this is going to work. This is going to win the world. This is going to bring the kingdom, right, Father? Because right now, it does not look that way. When Jesus is being arrested and Peter takes out the sword, Jesus has, has to have faith to not rely on that kind of power as Peter cuts off the ear of the guard, but rather to rely on the kind, the kind of power he had, which was to heal the guard's ear. Even though he was a hostile, Jesus healed his, his ear. That takes faith. Healing your enemies is, is, is the way that good's going to overcome evil, not the sword. And when Jesus is on trial before Pilate, he could have called legions of angels. They got big muscles. They could vanquish the Romans like that. It takes faith not to rely on that kind of power. When you've got the power to squash your enemy and you still choose not to do it, that takes faith. This is, is going to win in the end, right? And God tells us that we're to have that same kind of attitude. It's a good Friday world, folks, but you've got to remember Easter is coming. And when Easter comes, it's going to look a whole lot different than it does now. But in this world, it's not obvious. In fact, in this world, to the natural mind, the Calvary electric chair lifestyle will look insane. But Jesus is saying, whatever happens to you, however threatened you feel, however threatened it seems that your country is, stay seated in the electric chair. Keep carrying the cross. Keep loving, keep serving, and trust that that kind of power, that love kind of power, the electric chair lifestyle kind of power, that will win the day in the end. It may not look like it on Good Friday, but it will win in the end. However painful things get, however insane it may look, however irrational it may feel, however bleak things may get, don't ever get out of that electric chair. Don't ever assume any other attitude than the one of the condemned criminal. Keep loving, keep being humble, keep serving, keep sacrificing, even for your enemy, and trust that when, good, when Easter comes, when the Easter of the cosmos comes and the kingdom is established, you will see how every self-sacrificial love you've ever in, gotten involved in helped move the world forward to that end. The people who shared the McDonald's this morning and brought the guy to church and moved the world a little bit forward to the kingdom of God. And when all is said and done, you'll see no self-sacrificial act of love will have been wasted. It may look wasted. It may look nonsense here and now, but it won't be. Never get out of the chair. Never put down the cross. Have faith that when Easter morning comes, that's the kind of power, that's the kind of love that will overcome evil and make the world the place God always wanted it to be. It applies, folks, to every area of our life. Every area of our life. When you're arguing with your spouse and there's that impulse to want to just squash Remember, you're called to carry the cross. When you're having a fight with your neighbor because of religion or politics or the color of your house or the property line, I don't know, uh, you know, there's that impulse to want to squash. Remember, you're called to carry the cross. Stay the condemned criminal in the chair. doesn't mean you become a doormat. doesn't mean you become a doormat, but it does mean that whatever you say, whatever you do, and even whatever you think, you've got to manifest Calvary love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, that all that you do, including arguments with spouses and neighbors. Let all that you do be done in love in a way that expresses their unsurpassable worth, in a way that ultimately serves them. When part of you feels led to sacrifice more time in a ministry and help out with inner city kids or help out with a neighbor, but another part of you just doesn't want to be inconvenienced, remember you're called to carry the cross, which is always kind of inconvenient. When you come upon a person in need, but you just don't feel like sharing, remember you're called to carry the cross. When you're feeling led to give, to invest more money in the, in, in the kingdom, in the work of the kingdom, but the other part of you just wants to, you know, spend it on yourself and, and, and pamper yourself a little bit more, remember you're called to carry the cross. When someone disparages you, discriminates against you because of your race, and there's that impulse to want to squash the person, 
Remember, you're called to carry the cross. And just bless them. Don't let them pollute you. Don't give them that authority. Just bless them. When someone treats you wrongly or overlooks you because of your gender, and there's that impulse to want to squash, to get even, or whatever, remember, remember you're called to carry the cross. When someone talks down to you like you're a child because, because you're in a wheelchair, you know, other disabilities, and there's that impulse to want to just get mad at the world, it's understandable, but don't let them pollute you. Don't, that, don't empower other people to, to put garbage in your, in, in, your, in your heart and mind. Just let it go. Remember you're called to carry the cross. When you find yourself judging other people, Remember that you're the condemned criminal and you're not in a position to judge anybody. And when you feel a sense of disdain towards a person or, or towards a people group because you're just so sure that their sin is worse than your sin and their sin's destroying the country and, and the family and whatever else, never get out of the wheelchair, the, the, the electric chair. Remember you're the condemned criminal. Let it go. Trust God. Remember you're called to carry the cross. When God's warriors try to recruit you to help you conquer enemies by t- picking up the sword, remember you're called to carry the cross. And then when you feel an impulse to want to judge God's warriors because they're just harming the name of Christ and giving Christianity a bad name, remember you're called to carry the cross. Don't become an anti-Pharisee Pharisee. When you're tempted with sin, when you're tempted with sin, uh, remember you're called to carry the cross. Sometimes walking with God can be painful. Uh, when you're tempted towards sexual sin uh, and you're living in frustration, it feels like pain sometimes. Uh, and the pleasures of the world just call out to you. Remember, you're called to carry the cross. Jesus said up front, this is going to hurt. Uh, and, and this is what we expect. It, it, is, it, it is going up against the current of, of fallen society. It, it's going to hurt a little bit. Uh, when, you, when you are tempted to cheat on your taxes just a little bit, because who's going to catch you? Remember, you're called to carry the cross and follow the crucified Savior. When those old addictions start calling at you, and oh, it feels so good, it would taste so good, it would this, that, or the other thing so good, remember you're called to carry the cross, just crucify it. We serve a shocking God, folks, but he's shockingly beautiful, and he calls us to be a shockingly beautiful people. It's shocking. That's where, what we're to live. Stay in the electric chair. Would you close your eyes just for a moment? I want to let the Holy Spirit seal this very important message. If you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ, you've never surrendered your life to him, do it right now. If there's something in you, like this guy who got the McDonald's this morning, you just surrender your life to him. Just say, Lord, I'm willing to get in the electric chair, forfeit all my rights, and I'll follow you. And if you do that right now, I want to encourage you to come forward at the end of the service and tell uh, some of our prayer team that will be up here. Uh, and tell them what you did and let them pray with you and get you started on a kingdom walk. For kingdom people, I say this. Are you in the electric chair? All of us get out of it at times. And the Lord is saying to us today, Will you take up the cross? Will you stay seated in the, in the electric chair? I want to ask the Holy Spirit right now who's moving in our midst to bring to our mind one area where we tend to get out of the chair and pick up the sword. It may be a person, it may be a situation where you want to conquer rather than serve. Just be honest, let the Holy Spirit bring that to your mind. And as he does, will you simply commit in your heart to resist that, that impulse. And ask the Holy Spirit to show you what the electric chair lifestyle, what the cross lifestyle, what the love lifestyle looks like in that situation or with regard to that person. It doesn't mean you ever become a doormat. 
Unless someone unjustly walk over you, but it does mean you never let yourself get polluted with hostility, anger, with the vengeance of Caesar. You keep the humility of the cross. Holy Spirit, just work in our life right now. Seal the message. Tell us what we need to know as we leave this place. As I'm getting ready to say our closing prayer, I want you to know that after the service, if you want to pray about anything, come up here. You can kneel at the altar or you can pray with our prayer team. Uh, They'd love to spend some time with you. But as we leave here, may the shocking God of outrageous love be forming our character, collapsing our religious judgments, confronting all forms of the carnal world that have gotten into our brains. And Lord, we ask that as we leave this place, you'll radicalize our spirit, help us to deconstruct what we think we know about God if it disagrees with Jesus Christ. And show us how we're to serve and give our life away to show forth your beauty and build your kingdom. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said one last time. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Go out and build the kingdom. Spend some time talking with one another out there in the gathering area.